the fifth consecutive trial scene. The American court system has nothing on the life of Paul. I want to wrap up this section of Acts by pointing out the balance we need as Christians when we read passages like this. It's a balance I think Bill has been trying to bring out the last few weeks, and it's one that I want to make uh, particularly explicit this week. It's the balance between Christian realism and Christian hope. It's a balance, on the one hand, that as Christians, we ought to be able to acknowledge the brokenness of the world, the difficult things around us. If you've been paying attention to the sermon titles the last few weeks, Paul Uh, Bill titled them The Sad Case of Felix and Drusilla and The Sad Case of Festus. There is no way of escaping the fact that in this world there are such sad cases. There are people with whom we will work and preach and bring the good news and we will deeply desire that they would be moved by it. And yet there are difficult things. There are places where we will want to see God's light shine. There are places, frankly, where we will want justice to be done, we will want righteousness to be done, and yet we will see the difficulties of the world. And more than that, as Christians, we will see those things, and we will know that they are not merely accidents. We will know that they aren't just the result of unfortunate circumstances that otherwise people would always just do good to one another and that everything would be fine, but we know both as Christians and in observing the world, just as human beings, we know the reality of this thing called sin. Not just because of circumstances, not just because of the things in life that make it difficult, but because of who we are. Romans 3 is a passage that many of us have heard frequently. It says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. You can imagine Paul sitting in a prison cell only a few years after writing that letter, thinking to himself, you know, I was right. I got it right. No one does good, not even one. And of course, Paul recognized that sinfulness more than anything else in himself. What does that mean? It means that as Christians, we need to be realists. We need to see the world as it is. We need to understand the reality of sin. We need to acknowledge and accept that we need to battle sin within ourselves. We need to see the world as it really is. On the other hand, we need to hold to Christian hope. We don't need to be taught that the world can be a difficult, painful place. That's a lesson that we are all taught pretty quickly in life without needing to seek it out. We don't need to go to college saying, please explain to me that the world is a difficult place. You turn on the news for the first time and you say, oh, the world is a difficult place. You have interactions with family, with friends. You say, oh, the world is a difficult place. What we do need to be convinced of is that there's hope. What I think we need to be reminded of over and over again is that even in the midst of a broken and difficult world, there is hope. This is what we see in the last of Paul's trial scenes. Not cynicism, not hopelessness, but this deep 
rooted, grounded Christian hope, Paul's confidence that even in the midst of what he was going through, Christ was working. Christ was doing what he had put him there to do. That's our goal this morning. As we look at this last, perhaps the most important of the trial scenes, to understand why, why, Paul, were you able to have that hope? Why, Paul, were you able to stand before court after court, official after official, with this sense of just unmovability, of solidity in Christ, of unbreakable hope? And our hope this morning is that we would grow into people of hope just like that. Now, it's interesting how if you read quickly through the trial scenes, they all kind of blur together, right? It's a passage of scripture where if you're just going through in your daily Bible reading, it's pretty easy to say, okay, yeah, another court scene. Let's, let's get through this one. Let's get through this one. Let's move on. Okay, and then some interesting stuff happens at the end of Acts. If we slow down a little bit, I think we notice some of the more um, interesting, some of the more helpful nuances that are in the text, And in this text, particularly, there are two helpful things. First, who is it that's putting Paul on trial? And second, how does he appeal to that authority? And as we look through the different trial scenes, we see different people and we see different ways of appealing. And in this one, it is particularly, I think, helpful. The names Agrippa and Bernice may not mean much to you at first glance. Um, If if you are particularly a student of Roman history, you may have some knowledge. Um, But at first glance, Agrippa and Bernice, okay, we've heard a bunch of new names. Who are these guys? Guy and girl. But if I told you that Agrippa was also named Herod Agrippa II, you may say, oh, that is a little more familiar. Agrippa was... Uh, Not related to Herod Antipas. I know you'd say, why are there all of these Herods? We'll get to that. Um, He wasn't related to the Herods who put Jesus on trial. He was, however, related to Herod the Great. The Herod whom the wise men uh, sought out on their way to see the infant Jesus, the one who tried to put Jesus to death as an infant. And Herod the Great decided not to pass his power to one son, as is generally done and probably reasonable, Um, but instead to divide his kingdom into four parts and to give rule of each part to one of his sons. If you've heard the name Herod the Tetrarch, um, that is literally the meaning of that. Tetra, four, uh, arch, kind of from the same word that we get monarch, um, ruler of a fourth. Technically, all of Herod's sons were Tetrarchs. They were rulers of a fourth of his kingdom. So you had this really interesting power dynamic that emerged Uh, It was not a stable situation between the Tetrarchies. You had competition between the sons of Herod. You had, I think because of that inner competition, you had pressures from outside. You had the Roman emperor who kind of came in and said, well, y'all can't kind of get this right, so I'm going to take control and shift power and do different things. So you had this really interesting dynamic that emerged. And by the time of Agrippa, a few generations later, it became even more complicated as more people got into the mix and more powers started shifting. And within that power dynamic, Agrippa is just a fascinating figure. He's pulled in different directions. On the one hand, he was very much of a subordinate ruler, right? When when I say he's King Agrippa, I don't mean king in the sense that we usually mean he is absolute sovereign over his kingdom. He is king, um, but in a sense in which 
the Roman emperor could come in and say, hey, king, you're going to do what I want you to do. And he seems to have been quite conscious of his need for the emperor's approval. Uh, Agrippa's official name, actually, was not Herod Agrippa II, although that was what he was frequently known as. His official name was Marcus Julius Agrippa, which is probably the most Roman-sounding name that you could have invented. And actually, not long after Paul stood before Agrippa, he was faced with a large-scale Jewish uprising, which eventually led to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And Agrippa was forced to choose, do I stand with my religious people, or do I stand with my government people? Agrippa chose the Romans. In that beginning of that uprising, as he was kind of expected by the Jews to become a part of it and to give his strength to it, instead he sent 2,000 of his soldiers to aid the Romans. On the other hand, he considered himself a devout Jew. So you see that kind of tension. Although he was not a particularly popular king, even early in his reign, before everything happened with the uprising, he was still known for his piety. He was still known for being a devout Jew to the extent that Paul could appeal to him by saying, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. It was known, it was a widely dispersed fact that he was a devout Jew, despite his Romanness. As you had this fascinating, conflicted figure, a man who was both intensely concerned with being Roman and intensely concerned with being Jewish, and before him stands Paul. Paul, the Roman citizen. Paul, the former Pharisee. So you see these kind of connections. Paul seems to have recognized the opportunity that he had here. The first words out of his mouth are, I consider myself fortunate. It's kind of an unusual statement in a fifth court case. He says, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Again, looking at that intersection, that balance of Christian realism, Christian hope. I think that's what we're seeing in Paul here. He doesn't have some false idea about Agrippa, that he is more legitimately Jewish than he is, that he wouldn't sell his people out. He seems to have have known some of the uh, scandalous backstory of Agrippa, his relationship with his sister Bernice was kind of an open secret in the time. There were a lot of things about his life that you look at and um, didn't reflect well on him then and certainly don't reflect well on him now. But Paul looked at this man and said, I think I can get through to you. I think I can make this connection to you. He recognized. He had that, that sense of hope, that sense of acknowledging that even with within the brokenness of the world, even within the sinfulness of man, Christ could work, and he seems to have put Paul where he was for a purpose. It reminds me, actually, of an Old Testament story, as I say that, to have been put there for a purpose. What story does it bring to mind? That story of Esther in the kingdom of Persia. If you remember the story, Esther had become queen of Persia, basically 
because the king thought she was pretty. And yet, as the story develops, Esther just becomes this powerful character. And the, uh, one, of, one of the king's um, kind of closest advisors, a man named Haman, became angry at the Jews because the king had taken the advice of, of uh, a man named Mordecai, a Jewish man, um, and had kind of put him to shame as he saw it. And so because he felt slighted by one Jewish man, he desired to put all of the Jews to death. And in that situation, Mordecai, this faithful Jewish man, goes to the queen, to Queen Esther, and he says, you have an opportunity. You have an opportunity to speak to the king. Esther says, you know, you know what kind of man the king is. If you walk into his presence unbidden, he can just put you to death. It's a frightening thing to be faced with. And yet, Mordecai says to Esther, and Esther receives this with such faith. He said, such faith. Mordecai says, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? It seemed to have been the recognition that Paul had. Who knows, but that I am in this place, in this ridiculous court case for such a time as this, to speak to this man with whom I uniquely can bring a word that he needs to hear, the word of Christ, of the gospel, the hope that was available to him, that was available to Paul, that was available to Agrippa. And we see Paul making the most of this opportunity. Paul knows how to reach his audience. Just as he spoke to the people of Athens in a way that connected with their experience, he speaks to Agrippa in a way that is personal and meaningful to him. Paul begins by appealing to his former way of life, essentially saying to Agrippa, I was once like you are now. I was committed to the truth of the Jewish scriptures but rejecting the one who fulfilled them. In verse 4, He says, my manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning of my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews, assumably by Agrippa himself. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. We're going to jump ahead to verse 9. We'll return to the section in the middle. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I put my vote, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Now Paul is doing two things. He's appealing to Agrippa's shared experience. Right? Agrippa is in the same place that Paul was in. He's deciding whether Paul deserved punishment for being a Christian. And Paul wanted to make it clear that he had already walked that path. On the other hand, he's showing the transformation that God had brought in his life. Paul knew that he wanted to say, he needed to say more than just these things are true. He knew that his life was going to be, especially with this man, his most powerful argument. We see, what did Paul's legalism, his Jewish uh, legalism, lead to? The words that he uses are raging fury. 
When you think about it, he's, he's speaking to a king. Do you think that kings want within their kingdoms people who are marked by their raging fury? He was marked by vigilantism, we would say. He and those around him took the law into their own hands. They didn't wait for a court or a king to judge. They said, this man has said that he is a Christian. He deserves death. He was a man whose heart was full of hate and whose life was full of chaos and murder. And he said, king, this is what your way, the Jewish people who are trying to put me on trial, this is what that leads to. But let me show you a different way. He makes a turn. That was life before. What about now? In verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. It's not an expression that we hear frequently. Um, It's not unheard of in the English language. um, But to kick against the goads is kind of a, um, a farming analogy. Like if you had an animal helping you to do work, um, it's saying that they essentially are trying to, to fight against the controls that you have put on them. So Saul, Saul, why are you trying to kick against the goads? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you For this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes. This is the point I want you to really pay attention to. So that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So we see this shift in Paul. We see a man of raging fury, a man who took the law into his own hands. We see this transformation to a man who's preaching forgiveness, a man who wants not just himself, not just his own people, but all to go from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. We see this transformation in Paul. And he speaks these words to Agrippa saying, this is not just my experience. This is not just a personal thing. This is not just one person's story. This is something that is available to you. This is something that is available to Jews, to Gentiles, to all. As a politician, this makes sense. As a person, this should be beautiful. Finally, we get this sense. Paul's reached the thing that he really wants to say. This is what matters. Not my life, but the people, whether Jews or Gentiles, should turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. It's kind of amusing. Agrippa thought he had Paul on the hot seat. And he all of a sudden... He seems to recognize that the tables have turned. 
The real question is not whether Paul is guilty. The real question is whether Agrippa is innocent or guilty. Not before a court of men, but before the court of God. There's an implied accusation in Paul's words. You, Agrippa, are in darkness. You, Agrippa, are under the power of Satan. You are fleeing from the way which God has established. There's only one remedy. There is only one way. Only one path that you might turn from darkness to light. And that one way is to receive forgiveness of sins in this man, Jesus Christ. Agrippa says to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul's answer reveals his heart, not just for Agrippa, but for everyone. And says, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. As I read this story, I'm struck by two feelings. First, I'm struck just by a a sense of amazement at Paul. I mean, how many people can stand before not one court but five with this sort of just cool, calm, solidity under pressure? That he can just stand there and say, my hope is in Christ. I'm not worried about you. I am not worried about the punishments that you could give me. My concern, my hope, my interest is in Jesus and him crucified. And second, I have a deep sense of anxiety that God might ask me to do the same thing. Maybe you read it the same way. That God would say to you, you would say to me, you're going to stand before those who mock the way of Christ, who have power over you and revile the things that you believe, and that you're going to have an opportunity to put Christ on the throne where he belongs and to say, this is my hope, this is the thing that matters to me. The scary thing is that as we think about this passage, we know that in fact that is going to happen. Maybe not before a court, maybe not before a king of the Jews, but in each of our lives that is going to happen. That is a reality that we will face. And if, like me, you receive that knowledge with a sense of anxiety of, am I going to do the right thing? Am I going to have the right words? Will I be a man of faith or will I show myself to be a coward? Will I show myself to put my own interests above Christ's? These are real concerns. These are things certainly that I wrestle with. Maybe you do as well. But as we read this story, we see not just a question of what did Paul do? What will we do? But in the midst of his defense, we see the reason that Paul is actually able to do what he does. Either we can thank God that he has given us people like Paul to stand between us and those who are frightening, or we can look at that thing that Paul says, this is why I'm able to do what I am doing right now. In the long run, we will have that opportunity. We will be put in that circumstance 
And the question is, will we be people like Paul, who have been transformed from people of raging fury to a people who can stand before kings and say, no, my hope is in Christ? What is it within this text that makes that possible? I want to point out two things. First, as Paul said to Agrippa, he was a transformed man. One of the things that can be an incredible comfort to us, an incredible, maybe we might say apologetic to ourselves, in moments where we want to take the easy way out, in moments where we may have doubts, where we may struggle against our faith, is an apologetic to ourselves to say, Christ has made me a transformed person. And if you forget that you are a transformed person, ask somebody who knew you before. It's funny, actually, one of my, one of my friends is sitting in the back, uh, Sterling. He, he knew me very briefly before I was a Christian. He could probably tell you some of those stories that I'm a transformed person. I can ask my parents, and they always say, you are a transformed person. To look at a way of life before Christ and to look at a way of life in which broken and sinful as I am, and I'm, I can speak to each of you and say, broken and sinful as, as each of you are, being human. When Christ starts to work in your life, there is this transformative power that comes in that says you are not who you used to be and that that thing points to Christ. I think in my own life of what I used to look like, I, I think particularly of the language that I used to use, the ways that I spoke before I was Christian, and think of what, what Christ did in my life, knowing that it was not because of myself that I was transformed, but that it was because of Christ. I think one of these is more beautiful, more good, more true than the other. Now, I list that first because what that points to is the most important thing. And this is what Christ, or sorry, this is what Paul points to most centrally in his own, we may call it a sermon to Agrippa. That Christ died, was buried, and rose again for the forgiveness of our sins. Paul says, you can look at my life, and that points to this thing that is more important than my life, but that works itself out within my life, which is that this story, this thing that has happened in Christ, is bigger than my own struggles, than my own brokenness. It is bigger than this trial, Agrippa. And so my hope in that thing can outweigh, can outdo any fear that I might feel in this situation. This is what I want us to take away from this passage, from this incredible story. Again, Christian realism. We see the world as it is. There is sin, there is brokenness. And yet Christian hope, knowing that Ultimately, when we stand before kings, when we stand before colleagues, when we stand before family members who say, your way of thinking and of life is ridiculous, we can say, you may think that, you may, you may continue to think that, but I, in that moment, can look to Christ and know and have that assurance that even though I feel uncomfortable, even though I feel attacked, even though, in Christ's case, he may be put to death, I have a hope that goes beyond this. I have a hope 
that will not fail me, a hope that will endure, and a hope that has transformed everything that I am about.